You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher, with me, Dr Mick Pope. After a three-part interview series with my friend Jess Morthup, it's back to just me talking for a little bit at least. Well, it's that time of year. We're approaching the Conference of the Parties in Glasgow, where world um, leaders will get together to talk about climate action, and one would hope and pray commit afresh to a 1.5 degrees Celsius target, which we're really pushing at. This target will avoid the worst of some impacts, particularly for Pacific Island nations. And we really do want governments to act. And it really does require legislation, as well as the societal changes that Christians will talk about. But what happens around times like these is that um, groups like Eternity News will post some really good stuff online about climate change. And a big shout out to Kylie Beach and her work there. And then on go the comments and there was an article just recently and i didn't even get to read it uh, or read much of the comments and i got tagged in it uh, you know along the lines of here he's a christian who's in climate science who understands meteorology etc etc but you have christians who will want to trump all of that uh, who will automatically uh, gainsay what uh, i might say and what others might say about the science uh, one of the comments was, oh, there's always been heat waves, blah, 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 blah. And so I engaged with that comment briefly, but I also posted an article, one of the articles that I'm going to talk about in this program. And from that article, I get the title of this episode, which is, you're not entitled to your opinion. And so this is something that I really want to say to Christians who might use folk theology and who don't really understand or have engaged with it at any real level beyond the superficial with the climate change science that no, you are not entitled to your opinion. This uh, comes from the title of A Peace in the Conversation by philosopher Patrick Stokes. He's an Australian philosopher. And the title was, no, you're not entitled to your opinion. He talks about teaching philosophy in the classroom. And it's interesting. He, he starts his his course with undergrads, with first years, with two things. And the first is that he, he says that uh, he addresses them as philosophers. Now, this is an interesting move. I've done first year philosophy, and I don't call myself a philosopher. Um, on By the same token, uh, for the past few years, in fact, the past two decades, I've been trying to think about, from a theological point of view, about climate change and environmental issues, and from time to time, I have been branded and have also self-identified as an eco-theologian. 
At one particular occasion, I was introduced as thus by a friend uh, at a, an event run by Ethos, and a, another good friend of mine pointed out, with a, with a bit of smile on his face, a bit of ironic smile, that really that I couldn't be addressed as such because I didn't even have a master's degree in theology. So it really raises the issue when it comes to people thinking they're entitled to their opinion about when you can identify uh, as someone qualified to make a comment like that. So it's interesting uh, for a philosopher to address his students as philosophers. Well, I guess that they are, but they're starting that journey in a classroom in a guided way. And someone like myself um, identifying as an eco-theologian. Well, now I have a master's degree in Hebrew Bible and it was a multi multidisciplinary type Thesis, can I call myself an eco-theologian now? Where am I, a Hebrew Bible scholar? Or I just don't know, really. Particularly when I understand that I don't know very much. And we'll touch upon that a bit later with the so-called Dunning-Kruger uh, syndrome or phenomenon. You know, so there's a difference between the know-it-alls, uh, who really know nothing, the novice, such as the um, philosophers in the classroom we've been mentioning, and then the certified I don't mean certifiable, I mean certified, that those with a higher degree, they've engaged actively in the research of a particular field and maybe they earn the title and therefore have something of expertise to comment on something as opposed to someone who just writes comments on a Facebook post. As I said, this classroom described by Patrick Stokes is, is, is a classroom, so it's a guided discussion where people are being led by an academic who's teaching them how to think, providing with essential knowledge, and, and it's mostly an appropriate way, a form of gatekeeping into a particular community of practice or expertise, which is valuable. Indeed, I've been on both sides in the science area on the peer of the peer review fence. And while it's not a perfect process, nonetheless, it performs a certain gatekeeping to uh, ensure that the ideas being put forward are substantial uh, and have something new and interesting to say about that particular field and therefore qualifies you by that process of having gone through that research of actually being able to make those statements. So when someone says that they're entitled to their opinion, the response of Patrick Stokes in his argue is, you're only entitled to what you can argue for. And so what you argue and how you argue it become important. It's, uh, and for those who are still cognizant or familiar with Monty Python, uh, as the members continue to age and kind of, uh, you know, the ongoing journey into obscurity and, and comments about cancel culture and all that sort of thing that people will, will say uh, as the world slips them past. You might be familiar with the argument sketch. You know, I'd like to have an argument, please. And the statement is made that it's more than the automatic gainsaying of the statement of the other person. And of course, the joke is that that's exactly what the sketch does. So to argue properly is simply more than saying you're wrong. And that's what a bunch of Facebook arguments tend to devolve into, which is why more and more I avoid them if I can, particularly if I understand or can get a sense of that someone's just a, a blocker, a climate change denier, not going to get through in that medium, which is not to say that I've given up on the idea that one can have a civil conversation in social media where people might be moved forward, but you've got to be willing to do that in the first place. And indeed, apparently, there's research that shows that if you're not, then you're not going to. So you're not entitled to have an opinion. That The idea that you're not entitled to have an opinion means you can't say anything you like. 
it's really quite frightening in the United States now that there are places, and I forget the exact context of this, where it was suggested that in schools you had to provide other voices on the Holocaust. People are not entitled to their view that the Holocaust didn't exist or it wasn't as bad. Uh, other than a factual error of that, the, the moral justification for permitting that in the first place just just is it blows my mind but the idea that you're not allowed to just say anything you like it doesn't mean that you can't say anything and we'll return to that idea later on so um, stokes points out that well that's just my opinion is not an argument winner it's in fact it's meant to close down an argument it says well regardless of what you say regardless of facts or logic or coherence or morality what i think is what i think now of course that might hold sway in some areas so stokes goes on to talk about types of opinion so there's mere opinion of which there are a range of things, versus certain knowledge. So, for example, 1 plus 1 is 2. That's something fundamental about the nature of mathematics. And indeed, people will argue whether or not this is a concept that's discovered or invented. And I lean towards the view that most of mathematics is actually a discovery in a, a kind of platonic sense, if you want, like. And you can push that further into a theistic argument, if you wish, Um and there's some interesting documentary, an interesting documentary series I watched last year. We're into the fifth lockdown, so they all merge into one, uh, which various mathematicians took sides on this issue. And some were all invented and some were all discovered and some were kind of the some things that appear to be invented and some things that appear to be discovered. But you shouldn't be arguing about one plus one is two. In fact, I posted a meme about this recently and got teared apart about it. You know, that's a reductionistic meme, etc. If I had a dollar for every time someone critiqued a meme or a cartoon or something or other, as you know, you wouldn't make arguments or statements on social media unless you were prepared to write a 5,000 word essay to take up an issue. I guess that's part of the reason that I have a podcast. That frustration of you want to make a point, but if you do it in a tweet or a meme, people are always going to say, oh, that's too simplistic. Well, yes, of course. Anyway, that's a bit of a rant. Uh, so you've got a certain knowledge like mathematics. Then you've got opinions, uh, sorry, opinions such as tastes or preferences, like your favorite flavor. You can't have an argument over that. If it's your opinion that vanilla is the best flavor of ice cream, then all well and good to you. I tend to agree, but that's beside the point. If it, mine was chocolate, it wouldn't matter or your favorite sports team, but not necessarily the best sports team because we have statistics, which might not settle every every issue, notwithstanding people's cynicism over stats, but you know, winning streaks and number of titles and all that kind of thing. You can get hard and fast about that, but having an argument over which is your favorite team, that's nonsensical. Over best, what do you mean by best? Then there's opinions based on expertise. Uh, and these should be evidence-based, and that evidence will depend upon the field. So public policy, for example, will be based upon effectiveness. Now, it would be nice if there was more public policy that was evidence-based. I'll leave that to one side. Science is meant to be based on evidence, so say medical trials of a vaccine. If you have information on that, hard data on that, 
um, large medical trials with few to no side effects or that significant or don't produce the side effects that people claim like swollen testicles if you caught up with that um, or observed analysis of data and models of say climate change where there's some hard and fast numbers with some uncertainty and so on and so forth and the usual caveats over correlation and causation well you know argument for another time so there are opinions that you can only hold if you're an expert so what do you do if you're not an expert can you argue well we'll get to that in a bit the second article that I read just recently I think is help, helpful is by Ethan Siegel at Forbes magazine and it's should you tell a professional they are wrong and he frames the general argument that people bring forth for this with three points the first is that there's a declaration that the expert is wrong no, climate change isn't happening for example the second is an assertion that a non-consensus opinion is instead correct and when you look at climate change for example those climate scientists who denied that climate change is human caused or that it's going to be severe in its impacts if we continue on current trajectories are in the minority. The fact that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change can every six years produce these consensus reports, which have been getting worse in their assessment of the situation all the time as we gather new observations, have clearer evidence of how much more frequently heat waves are occurring or changes in the uh, the cycle of rain, that points towards, for all intents and purposes, the truthfulness um, of or the the acceptance, the consensus acceptance of what you would call the greenhouse gas theory. That yes, the planet is warming. Yes, it is greenhouse gases produced by human activity, combustion, land clearing, etc. Um, and then the third step is that an accusation that the expert themselves is either corrupt, intellectually compromised, or a victim of groupthink. Now, of course, that's all. Those three things are always a possibility. But let me give you an example, a counterexample. Well, actually, no, it's an illustrative example. So there's a fellow called Richard Muller who was um, who is a physicist, and he didn't. He thought, I think, um, that points two and three, intellectual compromised or maybe a victim of groupthink was the state of play in climate science. So he collected a group of physicists, including Nobel Prize winning physicists, and they looked at all the data. Uh, they did the various um, correction techniques and they included data that climate scientists didn't include because they were concerned about the quality of the data and they weighed that according to their confidence of the value of it, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a, fa a fabulous um, video on YouTube you can find and Rich Mueller is an interview and he says basically two things. That firstly, they came up with a temperature trend that looked pretty much like every other um, uh, data center that does these things like NASA and NOAA in the United States, the Ocean and atmospheric agency um the university whose name's just gone out of my head uh in the uk for example doesn't matter the point is is that he did this analysis over again he's the repeatability of science and found exactly the same result and then fitted to that data the effects of volcanoes and carbon dioxide emissions due to human activity and got a smack on fit 
Now, I presented this as part of a presentation I gave to a bunch of church retirees by f- for a friend of mine who accepts the climate change science, etc. And someone spoke right at the very end and said how disappointed they were with Richard Muller and that he was going to a conference the very next week and they had their own data sets and so on and so forth. In other words, they existed in a bubble, an alternate universe where no matter how one of the the darlings of their cause, this Richard Mueller fellow, had uh, shown that he'd been wrong and that the climate science community were essentially right, but he'd done it by repeating uh, the process and doing all the science and the data sorting and so on. In other words, not only did he show that they were right, or he was right and that he matched with them and therefore they agreed with him and therefore they were right, whatever, but... but just demonstrated that science works as a guiding principle. Be skeptical, apply techniques, and accept the result, rather than just put up this wall of denial by saying that he's intellectually compromised or a victim of the groupthink or whatever it was. But people live in an alternate universe and are just not going to be convinced by your arguments. So, those three steps, if the expert is wrong... um, the non-consensus opinion is correct and the experts are compromised in some way, shape or form. So Siegel responds to this kind of three-point approach and says that, okay, you can argue with the expert if you are an expert in the field. And Muller wasn't an expert. I mean, well, he'd written a graduate level textbook about something known as the Milankovitch cycles, which is changes in the Earth's orbital parameters, um, the shape of the orbit and the Earth's wobble and all these sorts of things that drive ice ages. And he discovered quite quickly that it wasn't the cause of the warming that we see. So he was an expert and he and his team gained further expertise to make the statement. Secondly, have you discovered and verified the error and Almost all of us, myself included, quote secondhand, by authority, according to some level of bias, either towards a contrary opinion or the consensus, because you understand enough about the scientific process to think, well, if their consensus view is this, then it's much more likely that it's that than the alternative. Or if you have enough expertise, at least you could verify and that's, well, that's pretty much what uh, Muller did, wasn't it? Is the expert a contrarian? So we need to not pick experts according to our bias, a confirmation bias. But until experts decide the consensus needs to change, then that's really where you go. And then there's evidence of a conspiracy. But as um, Ethan Siegel points out, Fraud is usually a matter of private interest that benefits from challenging the consensus, not maintaining it. And so you can think about uh, the fossil fuel industry and companies like Exxon and the way in which they've funded what you might call astroturf organizations. They've funded advertising. They've tried to actively obscure or downplay the science. So that's part one of the program. That unless you're an expert, you really shouldn't be arguing with experts. And in the second part of the program, we'll go on and talk about Dunning-Kruger and other things.
Well, welcome back to the program. And we're talking about this whole issue of arguing with experts, particularly around the issue of climate change denial, as opposed to skepticism. Again, going back to the the example of Richard Muller, the physicist who thought that the climate change scientists had got their data analysis wrong. He was an expert in a field, gained expertise in the areas that he needed to, he and his team, and found that the climate scientists were essentially correct. So you might suggest that he fell prey initially to something known as Dunning-Kruger syndrome. Interestingly enough, the 1999 paper, Kruger was the first author. So they ripped off, not having their name uh, forward first in in the the title. But Dunning-Kruger, as they state in their abstract, is that people tend to hold overly favorable views of their abilities in many social and intellectual domains. People tend to think they're smarter than they actually are. Uh, And this is twofold. Firstly, people reach erroneous conclusions and make unfortunate choices. Well, we've all done that, right? Um, But further, and this is a harsh word, but I think it's fair, their incompetence, in other words, their lack of competence, robs them of the metacognitive ability to realize it. Uh, it's a bit like that old joke, what's the, the similarity between being dead and being stupid? Well, you're not aware of the fact that you are. The, the dead and the stupid are the same. If you're stupid, you don't know you're stupid. And there's actually a more technical um, uh, understanding of stupidity when we come to talk briefly about Bonhoeffer a bit later. Uh, they go on further in the paper to say that, quote, the skills that engender competence in a particular domain are often the very same skills necessary to evaluate competence in that domain. So you don't know what you don't know. If, for example, you're not uh, an immunologist or um, you know you don't develop vaccines, there's a, f- a fancy title for that, I can't think of it off the top of my head, then you won't understand much about how vaccines are developed unless someone explains it to you and you won't understand all the nuances. If you're not a climate change scientist, if you haven't looked rigorously at the observational data, if you don't understand, uh, say, the um, the parameterization schemes, that's the way in which physics is represented in computer models of climate change models, then you won't necessarily get there either. So how are you in a place to claim, firstly, that this person's wrong, and how are you going to be aware of the fact that you're making specious stupid comments you don't know what you don't know so you don't know that you're not really qualified to make those statements in the first place them's the simply the facts in an age where we can google what we like we automatically think that we have some level of understanding uh, beyond ourselves or you might pick up a a popular science book on a topic and particularly by a skeptic of vaccines or of climate change or whatever and all of a sudden think that you have omnipotence not omnipotence, omniscience in this area, or omnicompetence. Uh, Dunning and Kruger, or or Kruger and Dunning, uh, give the following example. Consider the ability to write grammatical English. The skill that enables one to construct a grammatical sentence, sorry, the skills that enable one to construct a grammatical sentence are the same skills necessary to recognize a grammatical sentence and thus are the same skills necessary to determine if a grammatical mistake has been made. Now, if you've ever read uh, a piece, um, like a, I've, uh, I've reviewed, peer-reviewed scientific journals written by non-English speakers, you don't expect them 
they have the English skills that you do. So this isn't necessarily a value judgment, but it's more about the issue of the openness to learn and to be told that you are wrong. Um, but it does get a little bit on the, the kind of uh, moral side because um, there's, there's two areas they highlight a bit later in the paper. Firstly, there's a burden of expertise, which, quote, is um, highly competent individuals also show some systematic bias in this bias in their self-appraisals. Across the four sets of studies that they conducted, participants in the top quartile, that's the top 25%, tended to underestimate their ability and test performance relative to their peers because they expected everyone to do as well as they did, at least, or better. Um, and so this is often translated into proper caution about conclusions, knowing that knowledge is provisional, uh, and so you, you, you hedge your bets. You don't make categorical statements. You say things like, this is consistent with, or it's possible, or it's likely. Um, and that doesn't make good news grab, does it? Other than you know, the statements, climate change isn't happening. You know, the IPCC report uses kind of Bayesian statistics to say very likely, essentially certain, but the interesting thing is if you look at the summary for policymakers over a couple of decades, how much more confident they become in their assessments of the fact that the planet is warming and that we are responsible. But experts hedge their bets. They know enough to know not to make absolutely categorical statements, statements they can't back up. Um and of course, changing your mind in a field, say something like science, doesn't mean that science is wrong, just that the previous conclusions weren't correct or weren't fully developed or whatever. So, you know, compare Isaac Newton and Einstein. Newton wasn't wrong. He was just not 100%, didn't capture everything and neither does Einstein. But people still use Newton all the time. We've used Newton to send rockets to the moon and to the outer planets and so on. Again, developments in climate change science the basic message that we're warming the planet and the basic sensitivity to doubling carbon dioxide hasn't changed for decades. Just, a, you know, it's moved about a little bit. That's different to say something like models of the atom, where the earliest models were completely wrong. So different fields of science, you know, there's humility, experts tend to avoid making categorical statements, mostly. So you've got the burden of expertise, but then you have the problem of incompetence. Um, and just to grab uh, some highlight bullet points from the paper, what they call the incompetent, those who don't have the expertise, fail through life experience to learn that they are unskilled. So there's a suggestion here that it's not just a, a cognitive ability here, but there's the ability to do something or learn a field of knowledge, but other, other ways in which they're cognitively inhibited from saying, oh, I must be wrong their intellectual humility. Partly because, as they identify, people seldom receive negative feedback about their skills and abilities from others in everyday life. Now, if you go to school, uh, you go to university, and they've got a positive attitude towards learning, then you'll get you know, a, a worse mark for your essay, unless you bought it online. I do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. It's a martial art where you, they say you win or you learn. So you're getting constant feedback. Um, and, and so this inability to learn 
that people are unskilled, the social comparison fails. They can't spot competence. And, and the media doesn't help when you get, um, say, a settled issue like vaccines or climate change and you have an expert and you have the troll or the, the non-consensus um, person in the field or whatnot. You know, it's just like, here's uh, an immunologist, here's someone who's developed vaccines and here's a concerned mother. The, the two just don't weigh up together or the concerned father or whatever. Uh, and you could probably add, in fact, you could definitely add to this pa- this original paper the idea of the echo chambers that we build. And social media has made this much, much worse and together with bots and Facebook algorithms, etc. And the media is just reduced. I'm going to touch upon this again in a second. The media is just reduced to entertainment value and it's just this oppositional model. So it's little wonder that people... Um, if they're not competent in a field in the first place for which there's some kind of um, moral outcomes or public policy or whatever attached to it, like climate change action or whether or not I could take a vaccine or wear a mask or whatever, uh, that we get ourselves into profound problems or issues. Really going to run out of time. Uh, This will be another episode potentially. Um, Let me just read to you a couple of quotes from Bonhoeffer's uh, Prison Letters. And I watched a video and I had it kind of confirmed that this was a pretty good summary of what he was saying, um, basically describing Bonhoeffer's theory of stupidity. So stupidity, he says, is more is more a more dangerous enemy of the good than malice. One may protest evil. It can be exposed and if needed, uh, present prevented by use of force. Evil always carries within itself the germ of its own subversion in that it leaves behind in human beings at least a sense of unease. Against stupidity, we are defenseless. Neither protests nor the use of force accomplishes anything here. Reason falls on deaf ears. Facts that contradict one's judgment simply need not be believed. In such moments, the stupid person even becomes critical, and when facts are irrefutable, they are just pushed aside as inconsequential as incidental. And we see this with Trump. In all this, the stupid person, in contrast to the malicious one, is utterly self-satisfied and being easily irritated becomes dangerous by going on the attack. For that reason, great caution is called for when dealing with a stupid person than with a malicious one. Never again will we try to persuade the stupid person with reasons, for it is senseless and dangerous. And that certainly describes various political kind of dramas we've seen play out over the time. Actually, I might get to the end of this. Um, Here's another quote that I think is also helpful. Upon close observation, it becomes apparent that every strong upsurge of power in the public sphere, be it of a political or religious nature, infects a large part of humankind with stupidity. The power of the one needs the stupidity of the other. The process at work here is not that particular human capacities, for instance the intellect, suddenly atrophy or fail. Instead, it seems that under the less conscious, uh, sorry, under the overwhelming impact of rising power, humans are deprived of their inner independence and, more or less consciously, give up establishing an autonomous position toward the emerging circumstances. The fact that the stupid person is often stubborn must not blind us to the fact that he is not independent. In conversation with him, one virtually feels like one is dealing not at all with him as a person, but with slogans, catchwords, and the like that have taken possession of him. 
He is under a spell, blinded, misused and abused in his very being. Having thus become a mindless fool, the stupid person will go, will also be capable of any evil and at the same time incapable of seeing that it is evil. This is where the danger of diabolical misuse lurks, for it, it is this that can once and for all destroy human beings. And of course, Bonhoeffer is talking about the rise of fascism in, in Nazi Germany. These two quotes could equally, equally describe the rise of um, fascism in Australia, the, the emerging right wing, the, the rubbish that we see on Twitter. It certainly matches Trump's rise very, very well. You know, the make America great again type thing or the Australia has fallen or any of these simple minded catchphrases. Um, even economic ones like jobs and growth can just be reduced to something that blots out any other thought of, say, climate change or environmental damage or the growing gap between the rich and poor, between the working class and the, the political class or the upper class or so on. It's an issue with bullshit, as I talked about in a previous program, and it's also the failure of the fourth estate. That is to say, a media that functions well, where editorial policies don't present just mere propaganda. And there are many papers in this country, and elsewhere, no doubt, that scream this. And there's just lack of a broad enough spectrum these days. I mean, I'll, I'll fly my flag and say I'm a Guardian reader. I don't think it's always brilliant, but you know, generally speaking, it's better than most of this tripe that we see in Australia and... You know, it's arguable that the ABC's fallen on its sword for the most. So this is this is problematic. Uh, Christians um, are the worst at all of this stuff. It's interesting because, you know, why? Because we say we have access to the truth, the Bible, and therefore we can trump science. Uh, but also we think simply because we are a Christian and we're a theologian and that the Bible is meant to be understood for the average believer, of which, of course, it is. But here from the Westminster Confession of Faith, quote, All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. And it cites 2 Peter 3.16. So uh, verses 15 and 16 read, so also our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, speaking of this as he does in all his letters, there are some things in them hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So, you know, unless you've got Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, um, some of the other contemporary languages, you understand culture, history and archaeology, systematic theology, biblical theology, etc., etc., to say, uh, to use the phrase, the Bible clearly states that, blah, 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 um, can be really problematic at times. And some of the things that the Bible very clearly says, like love God and love your neighbor, or particularly the latter, are often conveniently ignored. Um, so what can we do? Very, very briefly. Um, all of what I've said is a pitfall for myself presenting this podcast, clearly. And in the very first episode, I said I claim neither um, omniscience, so I didn't claim speaking ex cathedra, that I understood in depth anything that I might present, uh, nor moral superiority. 
simply that I wanted to open up a discussion and point to, to books that I've been reading and tossing around ideas. And I know it's hard to open a dialogue when it's just me broadcasting to the internet, but there's a Facebook page and we can have conversations and blah, blah, blah. I'm not claiming absolute authority. There's meant to be, and we should adopt a commitment to the truth, to bear, not to bear false witness, which is what the commandment says. Do not bear false witness. There's obviously intellectual humility. Now, Christians should be eminently humble people. Even if you think that we have exclusive access to the truth about God, Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. Um, uh, no one goes to the, comes to the Father except through him. Well, you didn't earn it either. And that doesn't guarantee that simply you have access to that uh, truth, that inner truth, that relational truth, uh, that you understand all things, be they areas of expertise or be they the knowledge of the Bible. We see through the, the mirror dimly, remember. Um, so be as educated as you can. This is the real problem of the internet, isn't it? Is that we've got access to so much great information. Um, we're drinking from the fire hose. There's so much to absorb in so many different areas. You need those, um, what's the skills? You need skills of discernment to sort the good from the bad, the bullshit from the truth, to follow the experts and listen to them and point to them whenever we're discussing. And this is something I try to do in this. Um, the things I talked about earlier, the consensus experts in a field when we don't have good reason to depart from that. But we need to be aware about Dunning-Kruger. Just because you've watched a few YouTube videos, or maybe you've done a master's, uh, or maybe you've done, I don't know, read a bunch of books, doesn't make you the expert. But pick some stuff and become as knowledgeable as you can. Be an informed citizen. But as I say, defer to experts and point uh, others to them. And that's, for example, what the likes of Greta Thunberg do, I think. Um, and it's not a matter of blind faith, but listening to expertise. And finally, lastly, particularly if you're a pastor or a podcaster, um, if you know experts, speak to them. Have them in your pulpit, have them on your podcast, which I'm trying to do, uh, so that people can hear firsthand the way in which people get not only what they know, but how they know what they know. Anyway, that's a bit of a rant. Uh, batten down your hatches. I'm going to be writing some stuff. Hopefully we'll pop online in various places about the upcoming conference of the parties and how we think about it as Christians and so on. And there will be people who will challenge me and I'll just grit, grit, grit my teeth and bear it. But, you know, really, unless you're an expert, you shouldn't be questioning the experts. Thank you for listening. And once more, God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.